Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation and chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under some seats nearby. Let's pray together. Our Father, we lift our hearts to you and ask that you would speak to us through your word, that we would hear your voice, and that we would be transformed from it. So please comfort where comfort is needed. Please convict where conviction is needed. Please give joy where joy is needed. And change us all into the image of your Son by the Spirit. Amen. Well, we're continuing in this series in the book of Revelation. And we come to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And these, as a reminder before we read this, are Jesus' messages to his churches in the first century. And so now we're reading what the Apostle John recorded from a vision that he saw of the risen Lord Jesus, and he's recording this message to the church in Thyatira. And this is a message for all the churches as well. So let's read this together, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2 to the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, God comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. That's a saying that was coined originally for the role of the newspaper in society. But this has often been used to describe how God speaks, and it's fitting because that's what we've seen week after week here as we've listened to what Jesus says to his churches We're listening to him give his own assessment of how local churches, particular local churches with people like you and me, how they're doing in this first century. And we've heard words that comfort them, and we've heard words that challenge and correct and convict them. We've heard him give assurance to Christians about the heart of his his heart of love for them. We've also heard him warn them and challenge them and call his people to repentance. 
So he is repeatedly comforting the afflicted here and afflicting the comfortable. And he does this still today. Those were particular words to particular churches, but they apply to all churches. Every one of these messages was delivered to individual churches, but each of them also ends with this phrase we read at the end of this one. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each of these particular messages were meant to be overheard by every church because this is what the Spirit is saying through the words of the risen Christ to His churches. And so, they have never stopped being relevant. They're His words to every church, including this local church and every local church in our area and around the globe and every church that will continue to be planted and endure until the end, until He comes. And so, these are words for us. He's speaking to us these same words. He comforts the afflicted, He inflicts the comfortable, and He offers hope to everybody who trusts Him. And so now we turn to this message to the church in a city called Thyatira. And this is a growing church in the sense of it was growing deeply in a life of, in lives of good works, but it also had a growing problem. It was a commendable church, but it had a cancerous threat. And if we use one word to summarize the theme of this message to this church, it would be the word works. Jesus mentions that word in each of the main movements of his message, each of the main sections of his message to this church. So, look with me at verse 19. He says, I know your works. And then he commends them for their works. But then in verse 22, he says that some of them must repent of her works, referring to the works that he does not commend. And then finally, in verse 26, he refers to his own works. He gives a promise to the one who keeps my works until the end. So this message moves from your works to her works to my works. And here's the point. Jesus cares about works. He cares about what we do, not just on Sunday morning, but on Thursday afternoon. He cares about how we conduct ourselves in the workplace, how we treat one another within the walls of our home. He cares about the studies that we do in high school and college and graduate studies. He cares about how we interact with professors and how we act with integrity in the school context. And so the danger in Thyatira is that there there is a pseudo-Christian teaching that is leading and can influence Christians and others to be drawn away from rather than into a life of diligence of good, with good works for the risen Christ. So, the message for people like these Christians in Thyatira is this. Do not even tolerate teaching that leads people to live out of step with the authority of the risen Christ. So, first, we'll consider the works that he does commend. Before Jesus addresses any concern with this church, he commends them. He encourages them about what's going well. But even before that, he draws attention to himself, as he's done in every one of these messages. He begins to commend them, but first he reminds them about about who he is and why this commendation matters. So, verse 18, you can read it with me. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So, Jesus calls himself the Son of God here. Now, very often in the New Testament, when that phrase is used to refer to Jesus, it's a reference to his divinity. He's God the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus as 
God. But here, and very often in the New Testament, it's more often referring to his status as our king, as the long-awaited Davidic king. In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David, King David, that there would be a line of kings that would come from him and an eternal kingdom. And ultimately, we see that an eternal king would rule and that this king would have a father-son relationship with God. God would be his father. He would be his son. And so Jesus is probably referring to that aspect of who he is. He is the true exalted king in the line of David here. And one reason why this is likely the case is because right at the end of this message, he starts referring to some of these promises to the Davidic king toward the end of this message to that church. So he's introducing himself to people as the true king, as one who has authority. He's seated on his throne. He also then, as this king, has eyes like a flame of fire. This is a symbolic statement referring to his piercing vision. He doesn't just see what we see on the surface. He pierces through our, what we see and right into our minds and into our hearts. He knows our motives. He sees through perceptions. He sees to the heart. Look at verse 23. It says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And that's probably an implication of having these eyes like flames of fire. Jesus can see to the motives of the soul, and he has a right perception of things. And his feet are like burnished bronze. They're strong and sturdy and able to crush his enemies. So Jesus presents himself to this church and to us as the one who has all authority. He is the king. He's not removed from us. He's not distant from us. He sees to the soul of every one of us. He sees then not only what we do, but why we do it. He knows the secrets in our souls and minds. He knows what we think in secret. He knows everything. And this is a thought that's meant to do two things, it seems here. It's meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So first it afflicts the comfortable because All of us, every human being is first afflicted by this thought or convicted by this thought because it means we're exposed and laid bare before the God who made us. To know, this is what it means to become a Christian in part. We begin to know that the God who made me sees what I've done with what he's given me. The God who made my eyes has seen where I've looked with my eyes. The God who made my mind has seen what I've done with my mind. The God who made my heart has seen me treasure all of these things above him with my heart. The God who made my body has seen the things I've done with my body. And so the assessment of the Bible about humanity is that no one is righteous, no, not one. We're all laid bare before him. So this is first an afflicting thought. And so we need to remember that the one who is this exalted king did not first come to rule in power, but to die in weakness. We need to remember the good news of the gospel that comes and rushes right in as we're convicted by this thought and know that the God who knows us and knows that we should fall under his judgment forever has sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross, taking all of the weight of our sins, what we've done, what we've thought, what we've felt, and poured out wrath on his son And so this God who made us and knows what we've done with what he's given us has also given his son for us so that all who trust him 
have a new life of forgiveness and freedom. He gives us new hearts. He begins to transform us. We now have the hope that one day our bodies and our souls will be so controlled by the Holy Spirit that there will not be one millisecond of a thought or motive that is out of step with His will. We're waiting for the new creation for that to come in its fullness. But He's already poured out His Spirit on His people today. And He's already begun to transform them as we see in this message as well of the things that He'll commend in a moment. And so we see God's grace here as well. So this is how the words afflict the comfortable. But how does Jesus' awareness of our minds and thoughts, how does that comfort us now? How can these words comfort Christians? Well, here's how. Jesus doesn't just see our sins. He doesn't just see our idolatrous thoughts. He doesn't just see the things that are off. He also sees the good works from good motives that he has begun to work in our hearts. And he's pleased by them. And he commends us for them. Ephesians 2 said that we are saved by grace, through faith, for a life of good works that God's created for us, that we should walk in them. And so we walk in these by the power of the Spirit. And then Jesus sees these works that he has produced in us. And then he affirms them and commends us for them. Verse 19, he says, right after he's introduced as this one with the piercing vision, he says, I know your works. And they don't need to think, "Uh uh-oh, because he says, and your love, and your faith, and your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. You've been growing in these things. There's a trajectory of growth in your lives. So if you want a checklist for a healthy church, it would include these things. Jesus, here's the list. If you are going to move away in the future and look for a new local church in your new area, this is a checklist for the kinds of things to consider because these are the things that Jesus cares about. These are the things that Jesus values. He, he cares about works, about love, about faith, about perseverance in the faith. The church is an active church that he's commending here, not a passive one. This is a church that engages in works of love and service in everyday life, not just on Sundays. And this isn't just about external works, it's about the motivations of the works because he commends them for their faith and their love. They, they truly trust Christ. They're holding fast to him. They love God. They love one another. They love the world, not perfectly, but progressively and truly. Now, I can't speak for Jesus, so I can't say for certain what Jesus would say to Zionsville Fellowship, but I think that Jesus would give this kind of commendation to this church, at least many and most here, because many of you have a trust in Jesus that, that has given evidence to the kind of life that's just like this church at Thyatira. You look just like this with faith and love and service and patient endurance and works that exceed the ones that were there in the beginning. And so let's just take that word service for a moment. Because if Jesus knows our works to the degree that, that our lives match this list, we can hear Jesus' commendation of us. And we will on that last day. So this word service, there's two categories to, of service. We can think about organized service and organic service. So organized service would be ways in which we serve that are more organized and coordinated. We're stepping into volunteer or ministry roles. 
Uh, organic service would be the ways in which we spontaneously serve in the course of everyday life. And other people may not even notice it. It may not have been planned. It's not coordinated or organized in any way. It happens through small groups and hospitality and biblical friendship. And so I was curious recently about just how many people are serving in the organized ways here uh, at Zionsville Fellowship. Uh, and from time to time, how, how many, I mean, how many times from time to time do we hear about needing volunteers? And I think we sometimes wonder, so did people volunteer? So I mentioned a few weeks ago, I wanted to give a quick update. We asked for volunteers and we got volunteers. Um, same with this morning. We've asked for volunteers for the Vacation Bible School at Neighborhood Fellowship. And many of you responded and there's just a few left. And so I was curious, more bigger picture, how many people volunteer? Many of you recruit for people to serve in ministries in this church. So I did a bit of research and I asked some ministry leaders how many people serve in their ministries and I was shocked by what I found in a good way to settle any, any fears there. And I want to <laughs> share with you uh, what I found as a, as a way of commending you and, and sharing in this. So here's just the, the adults serving as far as numbers. Adults and children and youth are serving. Our church has give or take, something like 550 adults or so, and 330 are serving in organized ways, have heard a volunteer opportunity, and have responded and stepped into that, which means that that 80-20 rule doesn't apply to our church, right? Uh, what is it, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work? Because the majority of you in this room are stepping into organized service opportunities and roles. And many people are serving in two, three, four, or five roles. So here are a few examples. Uh, the nursery has 82 people on the list to serve. About half of them regularly serving in the nursery, the other half serving as subs. The K-5 Sunday School has 97 people volunteering that's a very high number. I was surprised by that many. Almost 100 people is what it takes to serve and to, to have the K-5 through ministry uh, function. And that's teachers and assistants and people leading dramas and music. And then there's another 20 people serving with the preschool ministry. Musicians and sound and video, 23 people serving. The greeting ministry, those who welcome people on a list of rotations to create a, help us be a hospitable church to one another, 76 of you are, are serving in the greeting ministry. High school, middle school, and special needs, 45 people are serving in that ministry. Mom's Day In, 77 people are serving on these Fridays for child care and providing food and teaching. Small group leaders and co-leaders, over 60 people are serving in those roles. There's more, and those are just the ones we can count. These are the organized service opportunities. That's awesome. I just, that's, that's great. So I think we can hear Jesus' commendation of, well done. I know your works. I know your service and your faith and your love, 
and how it's increasing. And so we could add to the other category, you know, organic service, all the ways that are far less easily quantifiable. Many of you serve one another very intentionally in non-organized ways. You don't have an official volunteer role to serve, but you bring people meals or you organize people um, to to give meals to those who have a, a crisis in their life or a heavier situation in life. Or you offer to babysit so a couple can get time out together. Or you give someone a book and then you use your gift of teaching to meet with them and help them grow as a disciple. Or you use your gift of encouragement in conversations just at our fellowship time a few moments ago or after the service or through everyday life. And and the examples could go on and on and on. So to the degree that we fit this description of Jesus' commendation of the church at Thyatira, Jesus says what he said to us, what he said to them. I know your works and your love and faith and service and patient endurance. So I think we should be encouraged this morning. Before we move on, two additional observations. First, I want us to not just consider what Jesus says here, but even that he said it. He didn't have to say those things to them. There is a concern, a very large concern, that he has with the church in Thyatira, and he'll get to it in a moment. But before he does, that doesn't stop him from taking time to make a pretty substantial list of things that he sincerely commends them for. He didn't have to do that, but he wanted to stop and affirm them and say, way to go. He wanted to celebrate what God, the Spirit, was doing in their midst. He wanted to celebrate their acts of service and their diligence and commitment to them. So I think we can learn from this. We can learn something about Christ's own heart in seeing this affirmation that he gives. Jesus is not impossible to please. He's pleased here. He isn't just watching people for missteps. He doesn't overlook our efforts of sincere obedience to him. He sees them and he's, he is waiting for the day and he's storing these up for that day when you'll stand before him and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to mean it. And he has those thoughts about you even right now in preparation, anticipation of that day. And the second thing we can learn from this is about how our hearts should be because the Christian life is in large part, about becoming like Jesus in the ways that we can, becoming holy like Jesus. And this is a key part of what it looks like. I think one of the biggest issues on a negative side that we have in our families and churches and cities today, in person and certainly online and through social media, is that we don't assume the best in one another. And it's in large part because we don't even see the best in one another. We're suspicious about negative motives lurking behind what people do, even the good things people do. And it's not just that we don't assume the best, we don't even see it in people, we glance right over it because the negatives in people, whether real or perceived, bother us more. But Jesus sees the best and he doesn't pass over it. He verbally affirms it. And so this is a model for how to speak to one another. If we have a concern that we want to address in someone's life, there is a fitting place for that. And Jesus models that here and what he says even next. But we need to stop and assume the best. We need to see the best. And then we need to commend and affirm the best in people. We need to see what Jesus sees. We want to have perception like Jesus has. And Jesus doesn't just see the negative. He doesn't just see concerns. He sees things to say, 
way to go to. This is also a model for how we then think and speak about our own church, making sure that we don't let negatives overshadow the bright positives that Jesus sees and even commends. We don't let the things that we don't like overshadow the truly good things that Jesus commends. And also as we talk about other churches, we make sure that our words sound like Jesus's in this message. Sometimes we fail to commend the good in other churches because we're a bit more bothered by something negative that we see or something that we don't like. And sometimes what we don't like is in the category of preference, something that Jesus wouldn't even bring up in his messages to the churches. Um, Jesus brings up real concerns and he also commends real qualities that are worthy of commendation. That's the first observation before we move on. Second, is for those of you who feel overlooked and have not received commendation and affirmation for the way in which you have been loving and trusting and serving with patient endurance. Maybe you see people commended all around you for what they're doing. And over time, you feel over, overlooked and you wonder why people haven't commended you. Or maybe you've been wrongly criticized or overlooked Or maybe someone has recently given you a criticism without giving any affirmation, even though there was plenty of warrant for that commendation and affirmation. So I want to encourage you to look to Jesus here, because he is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. He's the one who searches mind and heart. He's the one who sees truly, and he sees everything you've done. And he has a heart of love for you and commends you for what you do out of faith in him. He takes you seriously, and he takes what you're doing for him seriously, even if no one else seems to. And he's the one whose opinion matters above everyone else's. This has been encouraging to me in seasons of discouragement. I carry around in my back pocket this little black pocket notebook, and I write things in here that I want to remember, whether scriptures or quotes or just things that help me live the Christian life, reminders that I need because of the particular way that I'm wired or broken. And um, here, here are two things I wrote down that I often retur- return to. Charles Spurgeon, both, both from a book that he wrote called Lectures to My Students. He wrote this. Those who praise us are probably as much mistaken as those who abuse us. And... The point here isn't to discount all praise, right? That's, he's making a general statement. But the point is that Jesus is the one who's always accurate and he sees you. And second, he said, if, and this is the point then, if we have the commendation of God certified by a peaceful conscience, a clear conscience, then we can afford to be indifferent to the opinions of our fellow men, whether they commend or condemn. So knowing that Jesus has the right assessment of me and knowing that I'm doing something from a clear conscience, if we have that, then the praise or the criticism of others, we don't need to be strongly controlled by because we're fundamentally oriented under the the eyes of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't listen to the commendation or are encouraged by the commendation. 
Um, nor does it mean that we don't learn from criticism, but there's a larger point that Spurgeon's making here that I think is so stabilizing to our souls in, this, in these days. So those are the works he commends. Second, what are the works that he exposes? So Jesus moves from the works of these Christians to the works of a woman he calls Jezebel. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So who is this woman in Thyatira? Well, she apparently calls herself a prophetess. So she claims that she has a direct connection to God here. And she claims that her teaching then is from God. And yet her teaching doesn't line up with Scripture which is God's word. That's the sign of a false prophet, one who claims to hear things from God, and yet when they speak those things that they claim to hear from God, they don't line up with the Bible. The world's filled with people like this, whether they claim to be prophets or prophetesses or not. I mean, so many of them, I don't know why it works this way, but so many of them are the ones that show up on TV um, and they speak these secret messages that you can only get from them and then when you, when you examine them according to Scripture, it doesn't actually line up. And so here is this woman who is claiming to speak from God, but she actually contradicts what God's Word says. And a key to what this woman is like is the name that Jesus gives her. He calls her Jezebel, and that may have been her real name. I think it's unlikely in the context to be a real name, because throughout these chapters, Jesus speaks symbolically. Um, and in one of the earlier churches, Jesus, churches, Jesus called one of the, the false te- the certain false teaching the teaching of Balaam. So he's drawing on things from the Old Testament and symbolically applying them to things that are going on in their midst to awaken them to the massive problem that they're confronted with. And so just like false teaching was referred to as the teaching of Balaam, Jesus nicknames it because it's like teaching from centuries before where Balaam led God's people into sexual immorality and idolatry. Now he calls this teacher Jezebel because this woman seems to be just like another woman in Israel's history who was leading God's people into immorality and idolatry. Jezebel was married to King Ahab. And she led Israel to commit idolatry by worshiping a false god named Baal. So she wasn't a prophetess, but she led a band of false prophets. And she was one of the most wicked characters in the whole Old Testament. And she led God's people away from God into false religion, into idolatry. And now there's a woman in Thyatira who's doing the same thing. And so Jesus, in order to awaken people to the problem, calls her Jezebel. She's leading these people to practice sexual immorality and commit idolatry. We saw last week what this probably looked like because it was the same thing that was going on in a previous church. Cities like Thyatira were filled with trade guilds. So if you were a potter or made clothes or worked with dye or worked with bronze, you would find the guild for other potters or those who make clothes or bronze makers. And this was your way into the economic life of the city. If you want to put food on the table for your family or support yourself, you needed to go and enter into one of these trade guilds. But there's a problem for Christians because these guild meetings would often include a feast in honor of the God associated with whatever trade you had, the God that would give you blessing in your pottery business, for instance, or in your clothing business. And they would offer up a cup 
a drink offering to this God and would eat the food that was sacrificed to this God. And then as this feast and would continue through the evening, then sexual immorality would be introduced. So how does a Christian who wants to put bread on the table make a living in that kind of context? Well, he can't or she can't. Not without losing integrity, not with out dishonoring Christ, not without compromising convictions. You can't fully participate in that kind of thing. But then a woman came along claiming to be a prophetess, claiming to have a message from God. And she claimed to know deep things. She claimed to speak words from God. And she said, it's okay. Christians can participate in all of this kind of thing. No problem. Eat the food sacrificed to idols. Participate in the sexual immorality of your culture. And now I know some of you may have been in situations at work where you feel that same kind of pressure. You feel like going along with this. You feel this strong pull to go along with what everyone's doing or to celebrate what everyone's celebrating, to participate in after-hours activities on a business trip. And the pressures today, then, are not new. What your brothers and sisters faced in the first century in a city as unknown as Thyatira are the pressures that we face today. And Jesus is aware of them. And he calls us to stay faithful to him in every aspect of life, no matter the consequence. And then what if some woman like Jezebel comes along and says it's okay? Well, Jesus has severe words. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Could be a reference to the uh, spiritual children of sorts, those who are following her teaching. So Jesus is warning her and warning all who follow her teaching. He's warning if they don't repent, he himself will bring judgment on them. He'll make them sick. He'll bring an early death to them. That's strong. And it's not unique in the New Testament. It seems like this very thing happened within the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read about Jesus saying that there are people who, or Paul speaking about God, saying that there are members there who are sick and dying because of their sin. God was stepping in to judge them because of unrepentant sin in their midst, making people sick and even bringing them to death. This is what Jesus himself did in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. He brought a judgment into history, into their lives, because they lied to the Holy Spirit and they lied to the church. And so what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us that Jesus is the one not just with all authority, but that he uses that authority and that he uses it to protect his church. The message of these verses is that Jesus cares about the church too much to allow it to tolerate false teaching. Jesus cares more about holiness in the church than he does care about the feelings of heretics. Our temptation is to reverse that, caring about the feelings of false teachers more than we care about the holiness of the church. But false teaching is like a cancer. If you don't address it, it will destroy the body. And sometimes you have to remove the part of the body that's most affected by that cancer because it spreads it. But even still, notice Jesus' patience with her here. He said in verse 21 that he gave her time to repent already. And we don't know what that looked like. 
But Jesus gave her time. And he's still giving her time to repent. But she's refusing and he's patient. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus loves his church. He's commended them here. He loves them also enough to expose what's wrong. He's bringing things in the darkness out into the light in Thyatira. You know, there's a lot of exposing going on today in our culture of things that were done in the darkness that should have never been done. And it's being brought out into the light today. Sins previously thought private are brought out into the public. Things previously done in the darkness are being brought into the light. And this exposure is happening in seemingly every corner of our society. Also among churches and Christian institutions. And the point of this text is that we should not wait for God to expose these things. We should be bringing things out into the light. Walking in the light as his people ahead of time. So I wonder if any of you have something hidden that maybe even in light of the exposure that's going on in our culture, you wonder is something going to be exposed in you or just your own life and networks of relationship. There's something that you're keeping hidden that you don't want to be exposed. The gracious message of Jesus is to step out into the light, to bring that into the light and confess that to him confess that to a brother or sister and begin to walk by his strength in fullness of forgiveness and in the power of the Spirit. And to the rest, listen to Jesus' encouragement in verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, and so here's his message to the rest, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until you come. So Jesus has already commended them for their faith, their love, their service, their patience. And now he says, keep going. Just keep at it. He's not laying any other burden other than the one he's just said. Do not tolerate this false teaching that's like a cancer. So I I find this surprising as well. Other than not tolerating the false teaching, Jesus doesn't add anything else to them, to what they need to do. He just says, keep at it. Keep going. Jesus is not impossible to please. So some of you need to hear that this morning. All of us need to hear this this morning. That Jesus sees our diligence. He sees our service. He sees our efforts. And he very well may not have anything else he's expecting of you in this season of your life. Just keep at it. You're doing great. And so we can encourage and commend one another as well and say, keep going. Just don't tolerate this kind of damaging immoral teaching. So final question. If those are the works that we are to avoid, what works does he reward? He commended them for their works. He warned them against Jezebel's works, and now he tells them to keep his works. Verse 26, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, he says. So I think Jesus' works here are the very works that he's commending in them already. They're the same as the works that they've done, their faith, their love, their service. Those are his works in contrast to Jezebel's works. And what does he promise us? Way more than we could ever imagine. One of the most striking verses in the Bible to me. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus quotes Psalm 2 right here. This was a psalm that was 
contained a promise to the coming Davidic king, the coming eternal king who would rule the nations. He would receive authority to rule the world. Jesus is that king. He introduced himself as the son of God. He's the one who is the king over all all things. The New Testament is rife with Uh, evidence of that fulfillment. He even says here that he's received this authority from the Father. The world is his inheritance. But now, listen to what he says. He's going to share that with his people, with those who conquer. And that's not a subgroup of super-Christians. This is Christians. Those who conquer in Revelation are those who just hold fast by faith to the end. They don't give up. They keep going. And Jesus gives us this amazing promise we are going to share in his authority. And then he says, I will give to him the morning star. The morning star is also probably a reference to his kingship and authority. And later in Revelation, he also says that he is the morning star. So Jesus promises that we will inherit the world with him and we get him. We get all things. This is the generous heart of God. This is how Jesus comforts the afflicted. If you've felt like you have been the comfortable that Jesus has afflicted through his words in this text or in any of the previous ones in these weeks, Jesus also wants you to hear this comfort of grace that you could not earn, that he just gives. He is from his deepest heart generous. Jesus shares what he receives. He received authority from the Father. And unlike probably every other king that has ever ruled in all of human history, Jesus uses his authority to bless his people and then he shares that authority with them. He invites his people to rule with him. And so the end of Revelation says that God's people will reign with him forever. So what we were supposed to do in the beginning, Adam was, and Eve were commissioned to have dominion over the earth. We forfeit that through our sin and Jesus is restoring it back by his grace. So he receives all things and then he shares all things with you, all who trust him. And his generosity goes deeper than this because we know as we hear this, that we don't deserve an ounce of this. We don't deserve a drop of this. We forfeit every right to any blessing. We don't deserve to be breathing right now. But his heart is so deep that he doesn't just give us these things. He does it at this great cost to himself. Jesus himself, the one saying he'll share his authority, is the one who could have justly used his authority to crush all of us. But instead, he's crushed on the cross and then raised in triumph with his authority so that he can forgive and share that authority with all who trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that this word is more than we could have made up ourselves if we were to try to make up something that is beyond anything we've known. And so we thank you for your lavish generosity. We thank you that you are a God of love and grace and mercy. And so we pray that we would, by your Spirit's power, respond rightly to the risen Jesus. Bring ourselves, our whole hearts and lives, and every moment of our lives, under the authority of your Son. And also receive this great comfort 
of this promise of an eternal rule with your son. We pray that we would believe these promises with all our hearts more deeply than we have before and that we would increase in this coming week and months and years uh, in our love for you and one another, in our service for you and one another, in our good works that we do and in our patient endurance. We pray that our latter works would exceed the first works. And so we thank you that you're a God who commends us and who convicts us all in love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and receive a benediction from God's Word. Now may the God of all grace, with an infinitely generous heart, may Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equip us with everything we need to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight this week. Amen. Go in peace.